Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the end of my running calendar. Some people have a year-end calendar. Some people have a fiscal year-end calendar. I have a running calendar. It's not based on the sun or the moon or some Claudio Julian ego-based calculations. It's based on having finished the Boston Marathon and the Groton Road Race, and that's the end of my running year. Now we turn the calendar over. Today we have a long interview with Hal Elrod, the author of The Miracle Morning. He's a character, and he loves to talk, so we went a little long. I'll try to compensate by keeping my comments short. In Section 1, we have a post on how to deal with aggressive and angry people. And in Section 2, we talk about some strategies to recover after your marathon. I'm having fun with The Miracle Morning. For the most part, I've been getting up at 5 a.m. every day and working through my mental exercises. On those days when I don't set the alarm, I wake up anyhow because I'm used to it. It's a habit now. And I'm finding that I'm getting a bunch of high-quality work done in the morning. It's really good. However, I tend to start to fade. I start to lag in the early afternoon. And I get sleepy. And I don't get much done, especially creative stuff done in the afternoon. So that's a good time for a run or a bike, right? I'm testing an iPhone app called Sleep Cycle. So if you're familiar with this, you put the iPhone on the mattress when you sleep, and it tracks your movements, and it deduces what part of the sleep cycle you're in. And then when you set the alarm for a certain time, let's say plus or minus 15 minutes, the app will try to wake you when you're not in a deep sleep cycle. It's kind of interesting. I don't have enough data yet, but it's it's fun, and it's free. I ran the Boston Marathon, uh, and I had a great time. As you know, I was pretty beat up coming out of the long winter. In my Marathon a Month program, I spent the last month just working on strength and flexibility. And I knew I'd have to have a race strategy that was very conservative and careful. So I decided to run a 5-1 cadence. So run five minutes and walk a minute. And I was worried that I might have a repeat of those hard miles at, at the end of the Umstead Marathon that I ran in March. And I brought my usual four bottles of GenuCan, stayed away from the Gatorade or the... uh or the other stuff, the gels, and I took a GenuCan every 45 minutes to an hour or so, and that worked out just fine nutrition-wise. Once I made it over Heartbreak Hill without any issues, I knew I had it, and I was just out there running easy, having fun. I just started celebrating and working with the crowds from that point in, and it was a blast. I didn't want it to end, and it wasn't about time for me. It wasn't even about me. It was about closure. It was about, like I said, the end of my running calendar. And as I came down Boylston Street, my quads did start fire a little bit. So that tells me that I played it out almost perfectly for the fitness or lack thereof that I brought into the race. Some people complained about it being hot, but I thought it was a beautiful day. With the extra waves this year, the charity runners didn't get off the line until after 11 a.m. And so that's a lot like it used to be in the old days when the race started at noon. In that case, you get the hottest part of the day in the middle of the race. And then when you drop down into Boston in the early afternoon, it cools off as you drop down into that slump into Boston. And as you know, I went into the race fairly unhappy and stressed out about how much the recent happenings over the years have impacted the character of the event. But I tell you, as soon as I was out on that course, among my people, it was it was glorious. It was a blast. And just six days later, I had the honor of helping put on the Groton Road Race. The weekend was a whirlwind of activity. There are always a few last-minute crises to deal with, but it came off successfully with no major problems. Overall, the year-over-year registration numbers were down, but I we're guessing that's because of the long, cold winter that we had. The weather was overcast and cold for the race, which was tough on the fans, but great for the runners. We had a new course record. The same guy won the 5K and the 10K and set a course record. So my year is over. Time to move on to my next adventure. It takes a lot of stress off me. 
Not that I can't deal with it, but it just made for a long year with all the stuff going on in my life. So on with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Dealing with aggressive and negative people. How to avoid playing their game. I recently had an interaction with someone that was, frankly, a bit unpleasant, but gave me an opportunity to practice some of my leadership skills. In this case, the person came at me quite aggressively and borderline hostile in an email out of the blue. They were in attack mode. Most people don't like conflict. I certainly don't like being attacked, but conflict is part of life, and sometimes conflict can be quite constructive in making progress and solving problems. Conflict stimulates action and throws issues into high relief so that they can be worked on. This person was attacking me. What should I do? What would you do? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? Well, first, don't get angry. Keep calm. Take a deep breath. You control your emotions. You control your response. The problem is that when you're confronted by an aggressive surprise attack out of the blue like this, whether in writing or in person, your dinosaur brain kicks in. You immediately go into fight-or-flight mode. Your first reaction when someone takes a verbal swing at you might be to rear back and knock them on their ass. Don't do it. Don't fight on their ground. This is the hardest part. You need to choose the ground for the interaction, and you need to move it out of the dinosaur brain into your big brain so you can make rational decisions. Keep calm and let the aggressive person state their case, express their anger, blow off their steam, let them vent. Now, obviously, the caveat here is that you cannot accept or allow them to be abusive. If they start to attack you personally, or if it looks like it's going to get physical, you need to calmly state to them that you're willing to listen, but you're not going to allow personal abuse, and if they want this interaction to continue, they're going to have to tone it down a little bit. Secondly, don't argue with them. If you argue with them, you're stooping to their level, and you're playing to their strength. You don't have to agree, but you need to listen and ask the right questions instead of returning the attack. You don't have enough information to work with yet. All you know is that you're being attacked. Once you get your dinosaur brain out of the way and involve your big brain, you can start to ask the appropriate questions. Why is this person attacking me? What is their issue? What are they trying to accomplish? Can I help them? If someone is riled up to the point of coming at you hardcore from left field, then they have some issues that they're dealing with. Try to figure out what those are. See if you can figure out why they're coming on so strong. More than likely, they're under some sort of pressure and just got surprised by something that has thrown them into a panic. That doesn't mean you have to panic with them. Understanding that they are in trouble may allow you to empathize and see that in reality, they are a person in trouble and in need of help. Help is what you can provide once you get them over the hump of emotion. It may just be their normal state. Different cultures and personality types are just argumentative by nature. You may have run into someone who's acting perfectly normal for their culture. Especially if you're reading an email. You can't always determine intent by reading an email. Don't assume anything. Don't pour gas on the fire. And it's also helpful to use their name in your response. You assume power when you use another person's name. So you try something like this. I'm sorry. Can you help me to understand? I'm interested. Can you step back and tell me your story? How did how did you get to this point, Bob? Tell me about your organization and what you're trying to accomplish. It's perfectly okay to state your case, but you need to do it calmly and with facts, not emotions or opinions. Something like, Bob, it's my understanding that... Which is what I did in my email interaction. I did what I could to provide the information they needed and explained our situation, I offered to help. The next response was still an attack, but they had moved away from the original emotion. I again offered to help, 
and tried to understand. And the second thing I did, the other rule that I have, is no more than two email exchanges in this type of situation. After the second email, you need to pick up the phone or schedule a meeting in person, which is what I offered to do. And this not only shows that you're committed to a resolution, but it removes the unintended nuances of email and forces people to interact person to person, which is much better for resolving conflict. In the end, this individual ended up thanking me for being so nice and apologized for being pushy. I was able to find a common ground that was important for both of us. They had been surprised, and something they had put a lot of personal capital into was at risk. I was able to help them get beyond the panic and into the solutions. They had attacked me without having complete information. They essentially didn't know who or what they were dealing with, and they were making assumptions that a frontal assault was the best way to resolve a crisis. They were acting out of panic, out of fear. We've talked strategy before, and you all remember that you should never use a frontal assault as your default strategy because it is costly and only successful if you have a large numerical advantage. Unfortunately, the people you deal with in this world may not be as well-schooled in leadership theory as you are, and you have to hold your cards and be patient and let it play out. It's human nature to respond to attacks with attacks. But if you take the time to engage your big brain and come up with the appropriate response, you can get much better results. There's no need to create enemies, even if you're capable of a crushing response, and as much fun as that is. When dealing with an aggressive and negative person, don't stoop to their level. Engage on your level and create a better resolution for everyone involved by being a leader. Now, just a postscript here is that if you're ever in a situation where you're feeling personally threatened or in danger, get the hell out of there and seek some professional help. The situations I'm in, are I'm never at risk physically or, or personally. So keep that in mind. I hope this was helpful. And now for today's featured interview. How are you? I got hell in front with me. I love you. You're so passionate. I've seen you on TV and, and this sort of thing. And uh, So let me tell you how I got to you. Yeah. I think you'll like this story, right? Yeah. So a few weeks back, I had decided that I was going to work on one of my keystone habits. And so I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start getting up at 5 a.m and working on stuff, right? Because usually, you know, I'll get up at 6, 7, whatever, sure. right? And I travel a lot, so it's hard to get a good schedule. So I started doing that consistently for about three or four days, and all of a sudden I'm reading my email, and Amazon drops in front of me your book. In your email? And in my email. It, you know, in my Kindle, whatever, every day I get these messages from Amazon, and I'm like, how did they know? Thank you, Amazon. That's amazing. It was like, how did they know, though? How did yeah, they know? Yeah, did yeah, they, like, well, did they see I was reading my email at 5 o'clock in the morning and somehow make that connection? So uh, so then I, I read your book on, on a single airplane ride, and, I, and it really helped because I already had a pilot project going, right? Oh, wow. So, uh, so uh, yeah, so tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. So my name is Hal Elrod, um, author of the number one best-selling book, The Miracle Morning. And I always like to give the subtitle because I think that, that uh, you know, that kind of creates a little more intrigue. And the, uh, the subtitle is The Not-So-Obvious Secret Guaranteed to Transform Your Life Before 8 a.m. That's my second book. My first book is Taking Life Head-On. And then my day job, if you will, I run a coaching business. I've got, uh, I do one-on-one -on -one executive coaching. Um, I, I have got group, group coaching program with a uh, hundred or so entrepreneurs, business people, salespeople. And, uh, and then I'm a, an international keynote speaker. So I speak at live events, corporate events, colleges, high schools, uh, all over the U.S. and, uh, and Canada. So I say international, but, uh, you know, Canada is about as far as I've, uh, I've given speeches. That's sort of the joke when you go to one of those international airports in like upstate New York. <laughs> nice. That means they have that one flight to Canada. That's funny. That's funny. So, so you're a runner too, huh? Yeah, no, that see, that's deceiving. People say, you know, I hear you're an ultra marathon runner, and I said, no, runner gives the impression that I've run, I've run more than one ultra marathon. I'm probably crazy in my own way, but uh, not crazy like you, where you do these things because you enjoy them. <laughs> For me, I was told I would never walk again uh, at, at age 20. I was hit head on 
by a drunk driver, hit in my door at 70 miles an hour by a second vehicle, and uh, immediately broke 11 bones from um, breaking my leg in, in half, uh, broke my, my pelvis in three places, and I, I was dead for six minutes. I was in a coma for six days, and when I came out of the coma, the doctor said, um, in addition to my permanent brain damage, they said I would probably never walk again. I took my first step three weeks later, you know, kind of defied the logic of doctors. And years after that, a good friend of mine started a, a charity, a foundation called the Front Row Foundation, where they send people braving life-threatening illnesses to the front row of their favorite event. And uh, he said, hey, why don't you uh, why don't you do our annual, you know, our annual run? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm not a run, <laughs> not a runner. He said, oh, you know, it's for a good cause and you don't have to run. You could just walk a 3K, you know, with the with the grandmas and everybody. It's a long story short. The more I thought about it, I thought I can't walk a 3K with the grandmas. No offense, you know. And I thought maybe I'll run something. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll run a half marathon. And the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, that's, you know, I, I, I'd feel like a wuss if I ran a half marathon. Maybe I'll do a whole marathon. And, and, uh, and I don't know. I don't know exactly how it happened, but I somehow thought if I could run 26 miles, which seems impossible, but if I can get to the point where I could run 26, I could keep going for another 26 and do 52. That, that was my totally no experience to base it on illogical thinking. And so, yeah, I went from never running a day in my life beyond high school PE to uh, running a 52-mile ultramarathon. And then you just gave it up after that? And then I said, yeah, if people go, what's next for you? I go, what's next is I'm going to go home and I'm going to I'm gonna cross it off my bucket list and then uh, never run again. <laughs> See, but um, like the Miracle Morning in the same vein, running is a keystone habit, right? So, or, you know, you could replace the word running with endurance sports or exercise or whatever you want, sure. but it's it's one of those keystone habits. For example, if you build the habit of running every day, chances are you're not going to be a cigar smoker, yeah, right? You know, so there's, there's certain habits that pull a bunch of other good habits into their gravity well, and I think exercise, and I know you're a big yoga guy, I think exercise is one of those. Yeah. Oh, I think running is great. Um, and I mean, and, and it was honestly, it was the six months training for the ultra marathon, which, you know, I ran, I did a half marathon in that time. I, and then I did a 20 mile run. Those were the longest distances I had done for the ultra. I mean, it was, I loved it. It was some of the greatest time, you know, in my life. And, and um, it was an amazing accomplishment. I think part of it was for me, was like the mental, like I finally got there and I don't have, I just didn't have the desire to keep running. I mean, for me, I go, go to the gym. I, I play basketball every day, you know, six days a week. Um, so I definitely believe it's a, you know, that it, it's a crucial keystone habit and whether, whether it is running or it is, you know, being a triathlete or something along those lines. Like you said, I like yoga a lot as well, but uh, no, exer exercise is a crucial part of, uh, of the miracle morning and, you know, part of my life for sure. So give us the 200 words or less on the, <laughs> that's a challenge for you, I'm sure, on uh, the Miracle Morning methodology. All right, yeah, don't count my words here, but here we go. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, so, you know, the first and foremost, the Miracle Morning was born for me. It, w it was something very personal for me. It was not an idea that I had for a book. Neither of my books were ideas that I had for books. I hit a rock bottom. I felt like uh, life was at the as the worst it had ever been, and then I figured out how to overcome it faster than seemed humanly possible, and I felt responsible to share that with someone else, uh, and eventually share it in the form of a book. So my first book, Taking Life Head On, that's what happened. The Miracle Morning, same thing. I hit rock bottom in 2008 when the economy crashed, and I was deeply depressed. I, I had lost my house. My first house I bought, six months later, I lost it. I was living on credit cards, and I was, I was again, deeply depressed. And I had completely stopped exercising. I was not exercising at all because I was in scarcity and fear mode trying to salvage my income and turn things around. And the Miracle Morning is is the thing that I, in you know, not invented because it, it was nothing that had never been done before. It was just I researched the best of the best of the best practices for early rising and personal development. And then I created kind of a morning routine on, you know, on, on nitrous oxide, on steroids, on, you know, turbocharge, whatever you want to call it. And within two months of doing what is now known as the miracle morning, it, it didn't have a name back then. I had doubled, more than doubled my income. My depression didn't even take two months to go away. It was gone the 
after the first morning, my, my, my depression was almost gone. I went from being in the worst shape of my life to training for and running that ultra marathon, you know, six months later that we talked about. So the premise of the miracle morning, it, it, there's really two parts to what the book does for people. The first part is really getting us to understand that if we want to take our lives to the next level, and, and I'm talking about any area of our life, our, our health, our fitness, our, our finances, our relationships, or even just just our happiness. I've found that arguably the single most effective way to do that and the fastest way to do that is to take your morning routine to the next level. So how you start your day sets the tone for your entire day. And if you have a focused, organized, productive, goal-oriented, grateful morning, that's the type of life that you're going to, to you're going to see it transform and, and reflect that. But if you're like most people and you hit the snooze button and you waste the morning, you know, you procrastinate or lack discipline to get out of bed in the morning and have an unfocused, unproductive, chaotic morning, well, your life is going to reflect that because your your day, you know, begins each morning. And so the first part is teaching you how to wake up early, even if you're not a morning person. How do you make it extremely easy so you actually are excited and energized and motivated to wake up in the morning. And if you go to Amazon mm-hmm. and read the reviews, you'll find a lot of people that go, I never thought I could be a morning person, and now I get up every day at 5 a.m., and I it's easy for me. And then the second part right. is, what do you do that for the first 30 to 60 minutes of your day to dramatically accelerate your personal development and dramatically accelerate your success? And that's the miracle morning is, how do you you wake up early and do it in a fun, easy, exciting, energizing way, and then what do you do during that first 30 to 60 minutes so that you see measurable, extraordinary results and really faster than I ever thought was possible? And I, you know, it's very common for people in their first 30 days to just see these amazing life transformations. Yeah, because like, like we said, it is a keystone habit. A bunch of other stuff falls in line if you start doing it. And I'll tell you, the big aha I got from like I said, I was already piloting this process, and I've been doing this for years off and on, but the big aha moment for me was the thing you did about the self-talk before you go to bed when you set the alarm, yeah. because that was something that I did, right? I'd set that alarm at night, and I'd go, oh, crap, 5 a.m., really? Yeah, yeah. I hate getting up in the morning, and that was the last thing I told myself yep. before I went to bed. Yeah, it's the first thing you think of in the morning, right? <laughs> that last thought right. before bed, right? Right. So I was programming myself to hate getting up. Yeah. And it's interesting because I can draw a corollary to um, my training campaigns where I'm working out, where I do the same thing. If I know I got to get up in the morning and work out, I can make that workout because I, you know, I program myself to want to do it. Or if I have to work out late at night after a flight, I'll program myself. I'll, I'll have a certain routine to make sure my head's in it. Right. Yeah. So it's the same thing. It's self-programming to make sure that you do it. So so I found that really useful. Question I want to ask you, though, you know, you travel a lot. You're a speaker. I travel a lot. How do you work this around a schedule that is not a set schedule? Right. Not a nine to five schedule. It takes more discipline to do this when you're on the road in a hotel, not in your environment. You know, you actually covered, I guess I'll share a few of the steps. You know, there's a chapter in the book. Oh, yeah, you can you can go through the uh, methodology if you want. Yeah, so, there, so there's a chapter in the book called, it, it's a long chapter title. It's called The Five-Step Snooze-Proof Wake-Up Strategy. And this is for what I call snoozeaholics, right? You know, people that you're, I mean, literally, you're addicted to hitting the snooze button. You do it all the time. You're programmed to do it. The first step you already mentioned is it's setting your intentions before bed. And I actually, in the book, I give the bedtime affirmation. So literally, you don't have to think of what you're going to, how to do this. You read a document to yourself, and it, it sets it for you. And so that's the first thing. If you're traveling, you're on the road, you know, you've got to set the intentions before bed that I'm going to wake up at this time and that when the alarm goes off, no matter how I feel, I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to go brush my teeth, wash my face, drink a full glass of water, hydrate myself, and take on my day. And when you do that before you go to bed, then when you wake up in the morning, You've already visualized it. You've already gone through the motions. And no matter how you feel, you just act without having to really think and let your feelings dictate your actions. The second, one of the most important steps, the second step, though, and this is a game changer. And I've I've had so many people tell me that they go, this seems so simple, but it, it was the difference maker for me. And that is you've got set your alarm clock across the room as far as you possibly can. And if you're on the road, this is actually where, you know, I, I find myself, if I somehow forget to do this, where I set my phone next to the bed, you know, my alarm, 
Well, here's what happens for most of us. The alarm goes off next to your bed you, within arm's reach, and what I call your wake-up motivation level is at like a one or a two. You're still half asleep. You're, you're bare, you know, you're, you're still you're one foot into unconsciousness and, you know, one toe yeah, yeah, into yeah. consciousness, and of course you're going to every time you're going to hit the snooze button because you're, you're, not, you're not thinking rationally or clearly or intelligently because you're half asleep. So the alarm clock being all the way across the room, or if you're in a hotel, it's you know I usually sit on the bathroom counter in the hotel, so that it gets me all the way into the bathroom and I'm right there. And and once you get out of bed, your wake up motivation level just by getting out of bed to turn off the alarm that forces you to go from a one or a two to like a four or a five. And then if you go straight yeah. from the alarm to brush your teeth and wash your face, now you're at a six or a seven, and uh, it's much easier to to stay awake for the day. Yeah, because you're basically you're up at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. you're up. You could climb into back into bed, but it's almost harder to climb back into bed at that. Well, let point. me. You know what? I'm glad you said that because I will. I did an interview earlier today, and they they someone that had read the book asked me about this because they said this was a, a difference maker for them. So I'll share this, this with your audience. Um, and they said one of the things that you know that I talk about doing is I leave my bedroom like my when I'm at home, my alarm clock. My I use my phone and I set it by my bedroom door. Now, I have a master bedroom that has a bathroom in it that is 20 feet away from my bed, right? But here's the thing. If you are, if you stay after you wake up, even if you're up and you're out of bed, if you stay in your bedroom, the odds of you giving into the temptation of that warm, cozy bed and going back to sleep are, are very high. It'd be like a cigarette smoker who was trying to quit smoking cigarettes but kept a pack right there in their vision, Right. Yeah. And so so for me, I never get ready in my own bedroom in the morning. I don't brush my teeth in my own bedroom. I have I literally in one swoop, I go, I reach down, grab my phone and I keep walking out the bedroom door and my I've got my workout clothes and my toothbrush. It's set in my get in our guest bathroom. And that's where I go. I brush my teeth, wash my face. I have a full glass of water that I placed there the night before, because that's another one of the crucial steps is. You've got to hydrate yourself. First thing in the morning, you're exhausted. You're it, hydrated it, by default because you're six, seven, eight hours of sleep without any water. So by default, you're dehydrated, and dehydration and fatigue go hand in hand. You've got to, I pound that glass of water, and then I head downstairs, and I fill it up, and I, I start on my second one, and I put on my workout clothes. So I'm out of the bedroom. I'm hydrated. My teeth are brushed. I'm down. I'm ready to go. You know, those are most of the uh, the steps for a uh, for making waking up in the morning, you know, kind of a, a foolproof strategy, if you will, to, to be successful at it. Right. And what you're doing, if you look at it, there's a great book on habits you should read, but it's you're you're reprogramming a habit. So habits consist of triggers, the routine, and then the reward. So what you're doing is you're actually changing the trigger, and that leads to changing the routine and the reward. So yeah. You know, even if you said, I don't care about water, I don't care about any of this stuff, what you're doing is you're changing the triggers and you're changing the whole routine. So it, it actually changes the whole habit. It's, it's very powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's great. The thing I'm working around right now is how much sleep is enough, right? Because you always read these books about people who sleep three, four hours a night. Yeah. And it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll, you know, I'll kill over and die, especially with my training schedule. I need that sleep. But how do you know how much sleep you need? People say eight hours, but I'm sure that's just a rule of thumb. Yeah. I was reading an article today on by uh, Ariana Huffington, and she was doing this thing where she was getting three or four hours of sleep because she had so has such a force of will, and she could just you know program herself to do that. And she passed out walking down some stairs and broke her cheek. Oh gosh. She she eventually you know she has the you know so some of the people who are very driven have the force of will. To get by on three, four hours of sleep a night, but they're actually, you know, it's bad for them, yeah. right? So how do you figure out how much sleep is enough? So that that's an excellent question, and my answer is is considered, I think, controversial. In fact, I think uh, one of my few negative book reviews on my on my site actually con- said, how could he tell people that they only need this many hours of sleep, and who does he think he is, and that's dangerous, and... Here, this is my thought, and, and you know, if she would have read the book, I said in there, "Look, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not giving you medical advice. This is just my experience, and I've I've studied other people that have found the same thing. So anyway, here's the answer: is I believe that in general we need about as much sleep as we believe that we need, 
as we choose mm. to believe that we need. And mm. what I mean by that, and again, I, I'm not saying that you could go off 10 minutes a night. It's probably not going to happen. I mean, there are biological components where your body does need sleep. It's, a, it's an important part of rejuvenating and healing and, and all of those things and growing in your immune system and all of that. First of all, if you look at history, you mentioned, right, there's some of the most successful people, greatest minds of all time, Aristotle, Einstein, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas Jefferson, they're famous for sleeping three, four hours a night, right? So you go, okay, well, right. if they could pull it off, they weren't, they, you know, obviously their brains still function pretty well for the things that they accomplish in their lives. So we know that it's possible that you can be highly successful off much less sleep. Now, here's more of a practical, real-life experience. This is what I actually did. So as I'm studying and reading, I'm finding across the board, you can get by on three to four. No, 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 you need eight. No, 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 you need nine, six to seven. So I, I'm getting it all. I go, well, the only way, you know, I've got to try this out for myself and see what works for me. And that really is in part, you know, in part of my answer is what works for you. But I, I think that most people would take that as a, as a green, you know, as a get out of jail free card. Oh, well, then I'll just sleep. I'll tell myself I need eight or nine hours, right? Here's what I found. It goes back to what you talked about earlier and what we brought up, which is that step I teach in the book about how to set your intentions before bed in a way that creates that experience for the morning. Well, I believe very strongly in the mind-body connection, right? Our body is made up of, I don't know, billions of cells or trillions of cells. And I go back to, you know, I was told that this belief became very strong for me, the mind-body connection, when I had my car accident. And the doctor said I would never walk again. I told my parents when the doctors left the room, I said, Mom and Dad, stop crying. Pull yourself together. I said, one of two things is going to happen. Either the doctors are right, and I'll be in a wheelchair the rest of my life, and I've already decided I can accept that. I'll be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair. Or the other option is I will walk again, and I have unwavering faith that that will happen. If, if I'm wrong, I'll accept it. But I believe it will happen, and I'm going to believe every day that I'm going to walk, and I'm going to tell myself every day, and I'm going to pray every day, and I'm going to, I'm going to maintain that faith. Every day, and I'm going to work, I'm going to go to therapy, I'm going to do everything I can to walk. The doctors came back three weeks, no, no, I'm sorry, three weeks after the accident, but I was in a coma the first week. Two weeks after the, they told me I would never walk again with routine x-rays. And they said, Hal, we don't even know how to explain this, but your bones have healed at an extraordinary way. We're going to let you try and walk tomorrow. So that's where it was born. If my mind could heal my body, right, in that extraordinary way... Well, then the, the ability to program your cells to regenerate and to heal and, and, and for your, everything that needs to be done during that sleep to tell yourself, I'm going to get six hours of sleep tonight and I'm going to wake up feeling amazing. My body is a miraculous organism. It's going to heal itself. It's going to rejuvenate everything it needs to do. It's going to do in six hours. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up feeling excited, energized, ready to go. Well, I tried telling right. myself I could do it in eight and six five, six, seven, four hours, and every time I felt amazing when the alarm went off. Then I, I flipped it and I went eight hours of sleep, but oh man, I'm going to be exhausted. Eight hours is not enough. I'm going to feel so tired. And Chris, how do you think I felt when the alarm went off? You felt tired. Yep, it didn't matter if it was eight, seven, six, or five, or four. When I said I was going to feel tired and I went to bed telling myself that was what, and, and literally telling my body, hey cells, feel tired when my alarm goes off because I'm not getting enough sleep. That was my self-fulfilling reality in the morning. So I believe you know, that that's the answer to your question is we can program our body to function off of the amount of hours of sleep that we choose that, we, that, you know, that, that are going to work for us. Yeah, and I, I think uh, a lot of it is, ha is you, have to, uh, you have to work with it to what works for you, right? Yeah. You yeah. have to see how you feel. Absolutely. You I see think there is that bio biological, if you're training more like you are, Chris, right, you probably need more sleep than somebody that has a sedentary lifestyle, right? If you have a right. poor diet you, and you're eating late at night, well, you're going to feel tired in the morning because your body's digesting food all night and you're, you're not getting the rest that you need. So yeah, and and the other thing, the other thing with endurance athletes is a lot of times we're we're actually measuring our performance daily, like our heart rate and all those other stuff, so we can actually see the points where we uh, start to get stressed. Ah, right? Yeah, got it. That makes sense. So, so we can we can measure it that way as well, which would be interesting. I'd like to do a heart rate experiment on this. As I uh, start to wind us down a little bit here, what are the three best things you've learned? with consistent practice of this and dealing with people after you publish this book 
What are what are the big big one two three aha moments you've had in this? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is it, it was the aha moment that created the whole thing, and the aha moment that created the whole thing when I was at my low point and depressed and all of that. Uh, I heard a quote from Jim Rohn, and it was a quote I had heard before, but you know, you had to hear it at the right time, and you're in the right frame of mind. And this was the game changer for me. It was your level of success will rarely exceed your level of personal development. And I realized that in a, to quantify that, we all want level 10 success in every area. We want level 10 health, happiness, finances, relationships, you name it. But if our level of personal development is at a level two or a three, which is where mine was when I was, you know, my business was failing, I was a mess emotionally, mentally, you name it. I wasn't growing. I wasn't learning. Well, you find that you want level 10 success, but you're at a level two, then that's the disconnect, right? If you hold your hands in the air and you hold one hand up high at a, at a 10, one hand down low at a two, and you run them across each other, they don't meet head on, right? They miss each other. Right. And that's the disconnect. And I found that if you want level 10 success in your, in your marriage, in your, in your health, in your happiness, you've got to dedicate time each day to becoming a level 10 person. So that's the first yep. thing. And that's why I created the Miracle Morning because I needed time you know, to do that. Yep. The second big aha is how you start your day does set the tone for your entire life. And I guess I touched on this earlier, but there was a great blog article called The Rudder of the Day by Steve Pavlina. And in the same way that the rudder of a ship steers the ship, well, the rudder, uh, the morning is the rudder of the day. So that's what I realized is that if I miss my miracle morning, Chris, I'm telling you, and I tell people tell me this all the time. You know, we've got this Facebook community, this Miracle Morning community on Facebook with 3,500 people, and it's just awe-inspiring to see the transformations that people go through. One of the things they always tell me is, man, I missed my Miracle Morning today because, you know, X, Y, or Z happened. I was out late. It ruined my whole day. You know, it's like you don't even know what you're missing out on until you you, you you experience a better, right, like for you. You didn't know what it was like to not run, and then you start running, and now I'm sure if you don't run – you, you probably you're exactly yeah it's yeah it's it becomes its own reward yeah yeah absolutely exactly um, and then last but not least and th- this was a really neat you know this is really neat is um the miracle morning uh, doesn't just benefit you it doesn't just benefit your life but when you become a level ten person when you become a better version of yourself when you give yourself that time to take care of the most important person in your life which is you. Everything, every other person that you touch is impacted in a positive way. My family benefits, my, my wife and my, I've got two small kids. My daughter and I, by the way, we do the Miracle Morning. She's four years old and we have just literally a month ago just started doing the Miracle Morning every morning together. And, uh, you know, I've already done mine, but she wakes up and we do a, a kid's version and uh, we're, we're working on a book called The Miracle Morning for Kids. So the point is, Everyone in your life is is impacted. It really has a, a a ripple effect, if you will. And it's almost having done the Miracle Morning and seen how it's transformed so many lives, I almost feel like with that perspective, like everybody owes it not just to themselves, first and foremost, you do, but you owe it to your family. You owe it to your company. You owe it to your clients to to dedicate that time to becoming the person that you're you're destined to become. You're capable of becoming, you know. And if you have to do it in the evening and do your miracle evening, you know, I talk about in the book. If you have to do the miracle afternoon or evening, you can you can do that. It doesn't have to be in the morning. You know, obviously there's some benefits that you can't get in the evening that you do get in the morning. However, you know, just take that time to uh, to dedicate to to become. Uh, the the level ten person that you need to be to to easily create the level ten life that you really want. Right, and because those tasks that you can work on in in the morning when you when you set up this routine are not urgent tasks; they're important tasks. Yeah. Right. So these are things that you need to do, but if you just let you know life run its course, you'll never get to them. Yeah. You'll never get to these practices. And you'll end up uh, uh, at the end of the day without that self fulfillment. That's why it's it's uh, that's why it works. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. All right, man. Well, I'm going to move you to the exit. You're you're quite a talker for a person from uh, Los Angeles or wherever you San Jose. Where are you from? Uh, down near San Diego. San Diego. See, that was going to be my next. <laughs> Give us the links. Where can people find this? Amazon.com. You can get the book and read the reviews, you know, but I do have something set up for anybody where if money is tight for you right now, or if you're like, I'm not totally convinced yet. I want to, I want to check it out a little more. Or if money's so tight, you know, I've been there before where like you just, you just, I didn't have the 15 bucks to buy a book, even if it could change my life. I was so 
you know, financially strapped. So if that's you, you can get what I call the Miracle Morning Crash Course totally free. And that's at MiracleMorning.com. You'll get a a 15-minute video training, a 60-minute audio training, and two free chapters of the book. And that's totally free at MiracleMorning.com. So your listeners can go and, you know, you can, you know, dip your toe in the water, kind of get, you know, get, get, you'll, it'll get you started on that. And then, uh, and then when you're ready, you can always buy the book on Amazon. All right. Great stuff. By the way, they, Amazon offered it to me on Kindle, I think, for three bucks, Al. So ah, nice. It was, wasn't a big leap at that point. <laughs> nice, nice. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate all the uh, kind thoughts and intelligent thoughts and energy and passion that you bring to your craft. Awesome. Well, hey, cause I appreciate you, man. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been fun. All right. I appreciate all it. All right. Take care. Thank you, man. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Nine steps to recovery after a marathon. Nine things you can do to help your body and your mind cope and speed your recovery. Okay, my friends, you have just run a hard 26.2-mile race. You have been training for this event for three-plus months. You gave it everything. You left it all on the course. Now what? How do you recover physically, nutritionally, mentally to keep your mojo going? There is an intertwining of physical, nutritional, and mental activities that you can pursue holistically to speed your recovery, get back on your feet, and avoid the post-marathon blues. These are all interrelated, but for the sake of simplicity, let me break them out so that you can use them in your next race. First, the physical. When you cross the finish line of a marathon, your legs are going to be tired. Your joints and connective tissue may be sore. You may have muscle cramps. You have over-fatigued major muscle groups, and they may be spasming as a result. Your muscles are full of crap. Yep, that's it. They are full of the waste products produced by having to work so hard for so long. It's like they got very busy and didn't have a chance to take out the trash for a couple months. First thing you need to do is keep moving. When you come across the finish line, keep moving. Don't stop or sit or lie down. If you do, you'll get sick and your muscles will lock up. Keep moving. Now, I know you're tired. I know it's hard. I know it hurts. But you have to keep your legs moving for a few minutes. Or worst case, they'll spasm and lock up with cramps. Best case, they'll constrict, preventing blood flow and recovery. Number two, get a post-race massage. A good physio or certified massage therapist knows how to give a post-race massage. This is not a deep tissue massage. This is a flat or a pressure massage where the therapist pushes the junk, the crap, manually out of the major muscles. This simple thing will greatly reduce muscle soreness and speed recovery. Number three, consider a soak. There are arguments over what works and what doesn't. You certainly want to avoid hot baths or pro prolonged hot showers because this will make the existing swelling worse. I take ice baths after long hard workouts to relieve the swelling. Some people swear by Epsom salts baths. Test it out in training. Check in with your coach and see what works for you. Number four, wear compression. Now, I race in compression sleeves, so I'm usually looking to get out of them after the race. But some competitors swear by the healing impact of wearing compression gear following a race. Number five, stay active. The week following the race, don't sit around. Many plans and pundits will say you need to take two to three weeks completely off. That's a bunch of BS. Depending on how beat up you are, Consider which activities are best for you, but stay active. Only do those activities that don't hurt too much, but stay active. We don't mean running. Don't run unless you're really fit. Active recovery will help you heal and make you stronger. So go for a walk with your dog. Get some fresh air. Get on the bike for a low-intensity, high-RPM spin to get the blood moving, and again, pump that crap out of your muscles without any weight-bearing damage. Do some easy swimming if you have access to a pool. Work on some core strength routines, but stay off your legs. Do plenty of long, deep stretching or yoga to get your mobility so your body doesn't constrict and lock up. 
So the next big block of things you can do after your race is nutritional. You just finished a marathon. Surely you can eat whatever the heck you want, right? Well, yes, I'm not going to begrudge you your celebration foods of choice, but you still have to keep in the back of your mind that what you put in your body greatly impacts the quality of your recovery. So number six, settle and replenish. When you cross that finish line, you may never want to look at Gatorade ever again. Chances are you're going to be several minutes away from your own sources of food, so you have to choose something right off the bat that the race offers. When this happens, focus on simple foods that settle and replenish. Right after you've finished is when you may have some stomach problems. Once you stop moving, all that blood starts to pool, and you may immediately get nauseous, or it may hit you at any time in the first 20 to 30 minutes. For this reason, I would caution you to choose wisely. Get some cold water and sip it slowly to start countering the dehydration. Don't chug or gulp it or you may see it again. Choose a food that you know goes easy on your gut. I like to take a piece of banana because I find it settles my stomach. Some people like pretzels. I would recommend against any of the shakes, milks, or sports drinks that they may be shoving at you from the finish line. Most of this stuff is processed crap anyhow and isn't good for recovery. And just because it's being offered and it's free doesn't mean you should drink it. Number seven, rebuild. Once the first wave of nausea has passed, you can start to take in foods that will help your recovery. And I'm not going to get into a nutrition debate, so let's just leave it at you should get good, high-quality source of carbohydrates and a good, high-quality source of protein. Whole foods are always better than processed crap. You might make a nice pre-race, pre-made smoothie waiting for you at the room to start things off on the right foot, or some fruit, or some veggies. But once you've got some good stuff in, go ahead, have a beer and some junk food. You earned it. The last big block of stuff is mentally. One of the biggest issues people deal with after completing a marathon is a loss of direction. You have been focusing on the big event for several months. Now you're done. Now what? People call this the marathon blues or the post-marathon slump. How can you avoid it? Well, first thing, number eight, write down your race. Capture what went well and what didn't and why. How was your race strategy? How was your execution? How was your nutrition? Capture it so you can go over it and learn from it. Share it with your coach. And finally, number nine, set your next goal. Don't leave yourself up in the air. Script out a routine that will take you through the recovery and onto your next training cycle. Have a training plan for the week or two after the marathon with specific activities to keep your mind engaged on purpose. Use this opportunity to work on things that you haven't had time for, like stretching and yoga. Look out in the calendar two or three months ahead and sign up for another event. It doesn't have to be a marathon. It can be any event that gives you a clear horizon to plan for and look forward to. If you have a goal, you have a purpose, and you won't be lost in the post-marathon blues. Recovery is just another phase of the training and racing cycle. Save yourself some time and heartache. Do the little things that will help you recover and set you back on the path of success for your next event. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. That's it, my friends, who have daintily peeled back the page on another running year with me. So what's next? Well, my friends, next is not running for a month. <laughs> Maybe I'll start a streak. May is going to be my recovery month. I'm doing some yoga, some swimming, some core, some biking. My back is sore. My ankle has a tweaked ligament of some sort. And I've got a pain and numbness in my left knee. And all this doesn't prevent me from running, but it has limited my ability to train and race at the level of quality that I'd like since about, oh, October. So we'll give it some time and see if we can get healthy before anything else. I've been reading, as usual, 
let me catch you up on it. I read Chrissy Wellington's book, and it was interesting because I remember that Kona. Uh, the last chapter in the book is the Kona she won while all bruised up from a bike crash. And mostly I took away that she is batshit crazy. Not that I have anything against crazy people. I just don't want to be trapped in an elevator with them. I also read The Bean Trees by Barbara Kingsolver. I had listened to her other book, Pigs in Heaven, a few years ago, and I really liked it. She's an incredible writer. I very much enjoy her prose. I would recommend it. If you're into that sort of thing, I'm working through a business book I'm quite enjoying called Die Empty by Todd Henry, who does the Accidental Creative Podcast. Really good stuff for people who have to deliver creative work. And, of course, I read Hal's book, <laughs> The Marigold Morning. He sounded a little offended, didn't he, when I told him I read it in one plane ride? Well, you know, I read some books for the prose and others for the content and uh, adjust my reading speed accordingly. Last but not least, I was looking through the Kindle store and saw that all the Edgar Rice Burroughs books were free. So I downloaded a bunch and read Tarzan of the Apes. This was an enjoyable surprise. What a bodice ripper. To see the original work that spawned a pop cultural hero, it was just wonderful. It's a very engaging story. Quite awfully racist and classist and sexist, but it's a Victorian uh, era book. So if you can laugh that stuff off, it's quite entertaining. And I think I'll move on to some of his Mars books next. What's my plan going forward? No running in May. Then see how I feel. And then maybe train to run a qualifier at the end of summer. Because, you know, I got a little unfinished business. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao. I know. Oh, yeah. Oh,